Good morning. Please turn in your Bibles this morning to Genesis 35. Genesis chapter 35. We're going to cover 35 and 36 this morning. In our story last week, Jacob and his family had settled within eyesight of the small village of Shechem, which was named for the son of a local ruler. The boy, Shechem, had sex with Jacob's daughter, Dinah. When Shechem and his father tried to negotiate marriage and a business agreement, Dinah's brothers deceitfully said they would agree to the deal if the men of Shechem would become circumcised. Shechem and his father spun this deal to the town as better opportunities for business and marriages, so the men agreed. When they were in considerable pain from their circumcisions, Simeon and Levi took their swords and slaughtered every man in the town. Jacob was furious, but apparently only because he was afraid of retaliation by neighboring tribes. That brings us up to this morning. Let's start by reading chapter 35, verses 1 to 4. Then God said to Jacob, Go up to Bethel and settle there, and build an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Get rid of your foreign gods that you have with you, and purify yourselves, and change your clothes. And then come, let us go up to Bethel, where I can build an altar to God who answered me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods they had and the rings in their ears, and Jacob buried them under the oak at Shechem. Let's pray. Lord, help us to set aside the distractions and troubles of life for the next 20 minutes and focus on what you have for us from your word. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Jacob's sons, Levi and Simeon, had just slaughtered every man in Shechem. And Jacob was afraid that the neighboring Canaanite tribes would retaliate. So in verse 1, when God told Jacob to re relocate to Bethel, I'm not sure Jacob would have been very excited about that since Bethel was only 20 miles away and would still be well within range of any Canaanite tribes that wanted revenge. But Jacob's faith in God seems to have grown. So in verse 3, Jacob sp spoke to his household of the God who answered me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone. The implication was that Jacob was now confident that the God who had protected him for the last 20 years would continue to protect him from the Canaanites. So Jacob prepared his household to go to Bethel. Now, for most of my life, when I thought of Jacob, I thought of this great man of God. He was, after all, one of the patriarchs and the man for whom the nation of Israel, Israel is named. But we have to remember that until very recently, Jacob had not been a follower of the God of Abraham and Isaac. In fact, Jacob had been a scoundrel and his family were idolaters. You may remember that Rachel had stolen her family, her father's gods. We now find out that others in the family had their own gods as well. If Yahweh was going to be their God, they would have to ri get rid of all of their idols and purify themselves. 
In verse 4, that included getting rid of the rings in their ears. And that means that you ladies who are wearing earrings this morning are sinning, right? Wrong. Ezekiel 16, God himself is characterized as adorning Israel with fine jewelry, including earrings. I'm quite sure Ezekiel would never portray God as adorning Israelite Israel with earrings if earrings were inherently evil. The reason Jacob buried the earrings is not because earrings are evil, but because in this case they were undoubtedly connected with idolatry. The point is that Jacob and his household were preparing to worship God in Bethel, and they must rid themselves of all connections with foreign gods. As Moses would later write in the first of the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. That was true for Jacob and his family as well. So Jacob buried the idols, and his household set out for Bethel. There was no retaliation from the Canaanites. Verse 5 says, They set out, and the terror of God fell on the towns all around them, so that no one pursued them. From a human perspective, the surrounding Canaanite tribes had undoubtedly heard what happened in Shechem and were terrified of Jacob. From a divine perspective, God was protecting Jacob. Not because Jacob and his family were such upstanding people. They were not. But because God was being faithful to the covenant he had made with Abraham. So in verses 6 and 7, Jacob and his family arrived in Luz, which Jacob had renamed Bethel, or house of God. Twenty years earlier, Jacob had built an altar to God there when he was fleeing from Esau. Jacob now arrived back in Bethel and built another altar and worshipped God. In my opinion, his entire 20 years of exile was brought on by his own failure to trust God when he took matters into his own hands and sinfully deceived his brother Esau. Verses 9 and 10 say, After Jacob returned from Padan Aram, God appeared to him again and blessed him. God said to him, Your name is Jacob, but you will no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be Israel. So he named him Israel. These verses are puzzling because back in chapter 32, God had already named Jacob Israel. Why is God now changing Jacob's name to Israel again? And the answer is that God is not changing Jacob's name again. I think verses 9 and 10 are just reminding us of what happened back in chapter 32 when God appeared to Jacob and changed his name. The reminder is for emphasis. Similarly, verses 11 to 13 may be reminding us that back when God changed Jacob's name, he also reaffirmed the covenant to Jacob. Let's read that reminder in verses 11 to 13. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and increase in number. A nation and a community of nations will come from you. Kings will be among your descendants. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I also give to you. And I will give this land to your descendants after you. Then God went up from him at the place where he had talked with him. Now notice it says where he had talked to him. This is a flashback, I think, to chapter 32 when this happened. 
Once again, this is about the covenant God made with Abraham. It is summarized in different ways throughout Genesis, often emphasizing different aspects, but Genesis is about the covenant God made with Abraham. This covenant was a solemn promise to bless Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their descendants, and to bless those who bless them, and curse those who curse them, to drastically increase their number, and to give them the land of Canaan as a permanent possession. So in verses 14 and 15, Jacob set up a stone pillar at the place where God had talked with him, and he poured out a drink offering on it. He also poured oil on it. Jacob called the place where God had talked with him Bethel. Now, pouring out the drink offering and oil were expressions of worship. 20 years ago, back in chapter 28, God spoke to Jacob in a dream, giving him the covenant and promising to watch over him wherever he went and to bring him back to this land. Jacob had said that if God, Yahweh, would do that, Yahweh would become his God. Jacob was now back in the land in Bethel, and Jacob accepted Yahweh as his God. Now, we don't know how long Jacob and his family stayed in Bethel, but eventually verses 16 to 20 say, Then they moved out from Bethel. While they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel began to give birth and had great difficulty. As she was having great difficulty in childbirth, the midwife said to her, Don't despair, for you have another son. As she breathed her last, for she was dying, she named her son Benoni, but his father named him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. Over her tomb, Jacob set up a pillar. And to this day, that pillar remarks Rachel's tomb. Now, I've heard that one of the most dangerous things a woman might do back in the ancient world was to give birth. They obviously didn't have hospitals or ultrasounds, fetal monitoring, and medications back in Jacob's time. So if complications came up, many women died in childbirth. And that's what happened to Rachel. Now, let me follow a bit of a rabbit trail for a minute. I skipped over verse 8 which says, Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died and was buried under the oak outside Bethel. So it was named Alon Bakuth. Alon Bakuth means oak of weeping. Rebekah, of course, was Jacob's mother. Apparently, Rebekah had sent her nurse with Jacob when he fled to Haran in Padanaram. The question is, why in the world does the text even bother to mention the death of Rebecca's nurse? She doesn't seem to have any significance to the story. My guess, and it's only a wild guess, is that Rebecca's nurse Deborah served as the midwife in delivering Jacob's children. If so, she was very experienced in delivering babies. Maybe her death is mentioned because Jacob thought that if she had only been alive, Maybe she could have also been able to save Rachel. Like I said, that's only a wild guess. Anyway, as Rachel breathed her last, she named her baby Benoni, which means son of my trouble or son of my misfortune. Rachel had always been Jacob's favorite, 
So he probably did not want his son's name reminding him of Rachel's misfortune or unfortunate death. So he renamed his son Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. We have a similar expression today when someone says, he's my right hand man. Rather than allowing the death of his true love, Rachel, to destroy him, Jacob apparently chose to focus on the blessing of his new son. We can make ourselves miserable and even ruin our lives by focusing on the tragedies rather than the blessings. And I know that this is a lot easier said than done. Anyway, in verse 21, Israel moved on again and pitched his tent beyond Migdal Eger. Remember, Jacob's name is now Israel. Israel moved beyond Migdal Eder, which means tower of flock of the flock. It may have been a place where the shepherds could look down and keep watch over their flocks. It was only about five miles from Bethlehem. Verse 22 says, While Israel was living in that region, Reuben went in and slept with his father's concubine, Billa, and Israel heard of it. Now Moses just kind of drops this one verse in here without any explanation or comment on this evil. But there's a reason Moses mentions it. Reuben's sin in this verse was not just about sex. As we will see, Judah had his own problem with sex, and yet he did not lose his leadership over it as Reuben did. According to ancient Near Eastern custom, Reuben's sin would have been seen as an act of defiant rebellion against his father's leadership. We will find out later in Genesis 49 that because of this defiant act of rebellion, Reuben did not receive a blessing from his father, but a curse. He forfeited his leadership as Jacob's firstborn son. Now remember that Jacob's first four sons were Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Simeon and Levi would forfeit their blessing because they slaughtered all the men of Shechem. And now Reuben forfeits his blessing because of his defiant rebellion against his father. That only leaves Judah, the fourthborn. In chapter 49, Jacob not only blesses Judah as the leader of his brothers, but Jacob also prophesies that the Messiah will come from Judah. Now, before concluding the story, verses 22 to 26 list the 12 sons of Jacob, who would become the 12 tribes of Israel. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, and Rachel's only two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. Joseph will become the focus of the last part of the book, and Benjamin will play a major part in that story. The story ends in verses 27 to 29. Verse 27 says, When Jacob came home to his father Isaac in Mamre, near Kiriath Arba, that is Bethlehem or Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had stayed. Now, the last we heard, Isaac was in Beersheba. But while Jacob was in exile, Isaac apparently moved north to Hebron. So Jacob got to see his father again before he died. And Isaac, when Isaac died, Jacob and Esau buried him. So that's the end of chapter 35 and the life of Isaac. 
chapters 37 to the end of the book will focus on Joseph. But what about chapter 36? It's not about Isaac or Jacob or Joseph. Chapter 36, verse 1 says, This is the account of the family line of Esau, that is, Edom. Almost the entire chapter is just a genealogy of Esau's family tree. And the question is, what was the point? Why did Moses bother to include an extended genealogy of Esau? The text doesn't tell us, so all we can do is guess. Here's one possibility. When Moses wrote Genesis about 400 years after Jacob's time, the Israelites were preparing to take the promised land, and they wanted to go through the land of Edom. According to Numbers 20, the Edomites refused to let them through. Now, Israel could have gone to war with Edom, but God wouldn't let them. I think Moses may have included this chapter about Esau's descendants, the Edomites, to remind Israel that the Edomites were descendants of Abraham too, and that God had blessed them also. As much as Israel may have wanted to go to war with Edom, God would not let them. In fact, in Deuteronomy 23, God specifically told Israel not to despise the Edomite because they were related. So what practical lessons can we learn from this passage? Four observations. First, verse 29 tells us that Isaac breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Now this can't mean they were all buried in the same cemetery, because not all of them were buried in the same place. Abraham, Ishmael, Moses, and Aaron are all said to have been gathered to their people, but they weren't buried together. Not only that, but this expression was sometimes used when, after, when people died, even before they had been buried. So to be gathered to one's people after death cannot mean they were buried together. It means that regardless of where they were buried, their souls lived on and were gathered together. As I've said at every funeral I've ever preached, death is not the end. This is a truth taught even as early as Genesis. We will live on after death, and we will all stand before the judgment seat of God someday. Second, Jacob's life did not become easier after he accepted Yahweh as his God. In fact, it continued to be filled with trauma and drama. The terror of facing Esau. The defilement of his sister Dinah, his, his uh, daughter Dinah, the fear of retaliation by Canaanites, the death of his mother's nurse, the death of his true love Rachel, the death of his father Isaac, and even more trauma to come. Similarly, becoming a Christian does not protect us from trauma and drama. It certainly does not guarantee health, wealth, and prosperity in this life. In fact, John 16, Jesus warned that in this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. I suspect that one of the biggest reasons people throw away their pseudo-faith is because they think Christianity will give them health, wealth, and prosperity. And they become disillusioned when the bottom falls out. Being a follower of Jesus, however, is not about us. It is about striving to be faithful to our Lord out of gratitude for what he did for us on the cross. In 2 Corinthians 5, 9, Paul writes, So we are to make it our goal to please him. 
whether we are home in the body or away from it. And finally, before Jacob's household could truly worship God and take him as their God, they had to get rid of all their idols. Putting God first is a core truth throughout all of Scripture. The first of the Ten Commandments says, You will have no other gods before me. The very core foundation of Old Testament religion is called the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, which commands us to fear God and to love him with all our heart, soul, and strength. That command is repeated over and over again throughout Deuteronomy. Israel's failure to do this is seen throughout the kings and the prophets. The whole book of Ecclesiastes, which was about the futility of life without God, concludes by saying, Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Jesus, as the Son of God, repeatedly insists that he must come before all else. God's command to come before all else is not because he's some kind of narcissistic sociopath. When we put things before God, the result is often terribly destructive. For example, there are many people for whom money, power, or fame are their gods. They will often lie, steal, cheat, stab people in the back, and destroy reputations in pursuit of their gods. Others who put sex, drugs, or entertainment before God often end up messing or destroying marriages, families, and their own lives. Putting God first does not guarantee a life of ease. Quite the contrary. But putting God first gives meaning, purpose, and stability to life that nothing else can give. Have a heart, having a heart of loving devotion to God above all else is what saving faith is all about. Let's pray. Lord, help us daily to be faithful to you and to put you first above all else. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.